0: We'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Uh, today, our goal is to you know, finish the third chapter and complete the fourth as well. Uh, just kind of as we move along in the PowerPoint, uh, remember we are in the section of Acts where our focus is the work of the Lord, the work of the kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 2, you have a summary uh, as the growth is occurring very quickly. There is this united togetherness, and you, what is described for us is the work that the saints are doing and in regard to their benevolence and their fellowship and spiritual endeavors and just this mutual joy uh, and praising of God. Uh, but today, as we get into our chapter, we are in the third uh, chapter where a miracle has been performed. Uh um, A man who's been lame from birth, he's been that way for like 40 years already, and he's healed. God heals him through the work of Peter and John, and as a result, there is a large crowd of people who begin to gather around Peter and John and this healed man. And we're told that this is in uh, the temple complex area of Solomon's portico, or Solomon's porch, or Solomon's colonnade. The picture's not—I know know it's not uh, a great picture for you there, uh, but uh, you know it's trying to illustrate uh, in the center there, kind of toward the left aspect. That you know there's a darker section. Yeah, that would be the sanctuary itself, the temple itself. And around that temple are the various courtyards. And the largest one is the court of the Gentiles. And Solomon's porch or Solomon's colonnade would had been on the eastern side. So it, it is going to be on the right side of that uh, Gentile court. Uh, and so somewhere in that region is where you know, the preaching is going on. You know, the healing uh, uh, took place uh, at a gate that is named the Beautiful Gate, and it also is on the eastern side of this. Uh, there's some question whether the gate was into the Gentile court or the gate was into the, to the, the, the women's court. You know, there's some uncertainty, but they do pretty much agree that the, this gate would have been on the eastern side of you know, the, uh, the temple complex. And so as you, as you begin to get into the preaching of Peter and what, you, you know, what we want to do very quickly before we kind of start talking about this, maybe ask a few of our questions from the third lesson, the lesson three question sheet uh, number five, it says, why did Peter begin to preach in Solomon's porch? Why did he suddenly start preaching here? Say it again. At an audience, At an audience. Yes. You know, people gather together and they're all surrounding him. And so they're all coming together. And so it's a perfect opportunity for him now to expound, you know, on what has transpired and why it has transpired. Question eight, it says, of whom were Peter and John witnesses? Who were they witnesses of? It's Jesus Christ. And in this particular sermon, there's a number of different descriptions that he uses to identify who this Jesus is. Uh, and so it's described as God's servant. He is called the Prince of Life. He's called the Holy and Righteous One. And they are witnessing about this man, this character. Yeah. And last question, question 12 from that sheet is, why did God send his servant? At the end of chapter 3, it gives us a kind of summation of why he was sent. What's the answer? Last verse of chapter Three. All right, he was sent to uh, to bring the blessing of turning men for turning Jews away from their wickedness, because it is that wickedness that separates and alienates them from their God, from Jehovah. So in chapter three, you've got this amazing miracle where a man that was well known is healed. And you've got you know, this you know, kind of attention-grabbing event, and the crowds gather, and so Peter is going to preach Jesus. And what he's going to preach about Jesus is he's going to preach the resurrected Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Christ, the call is therefore repentance. This is who he is. This is what your response needs to be. But the first thing he does, when you look there particularly you know, in verse 12, You know, the first thing Peter does, the people are gathering around him, and it's a large crowd, and the courtyard of the Gentiles would allow this mass of people to come together. And so as as he begins to speak, he, he first of all turns their focus off of himself, and he turns the focus on the one that they need to be focusing on. Because there, there would be attended. You think about you know some occasions when the apostles did miracles, and this happened to Paul as well. When they did this amazing miracle, what often what would the what would the people's response be about that servant of God? Worship him. Worship him. They they begin to elevate this particular man in, in in a way that should not be elevated. And so Peter, from the start, says here he says you know. You know, why are you so amazed? You know, why do you, you know, gaze at us? You know, if by our own power, our own piety, we had made him walk. So Peter's saying, I didn't make this guy walk. John didn't make this guy walk. Let me tell you about who made this man walk. And when you think about the idea of, of this particular miracle, when you think about the first eight chap- you know, first actually first seven chapters, and it talks about, you know, the apostles were doing signs and wonders, but we're not told all the signs and wonders today. We're told one. We're giving one specific example of all the things that there actually was going on, you know, day after day. And so when you look at this, you see the purpose of this miracle was to turn hearts, goes back to as he kind of sums up his sermon here to this general public audience, It was to turn hearts to the true source of power. That was the purpose of the miracle. It wasn't just to make a man walk who's been lame from birth. Because he's not the only lame man in Jerusalem. He is not the only one who sat at gates in uh, in the temple complex begging for alms. But. By the Spirit, Peter and John select this particular one on this particular day, and Jesus heals him so that it creates an opportunity so it creates an audience so they can turn their hearts to Jesus, the servant of god and that's pr- that 's pr- the primary description here in this sermon that Jesus is the servant of God. you notice the uh, the sonship of, uh, of God is not the emphasis here. The emphasis is his servanthood. And so he's trying to turn these people's hearts to the servant of God. And you think about you know, this sermon, is a little shorter, a little briefer. In its record, it's very similar to Acts 2. You know, in Acts 2, what did they do? They preached Jesus. They preached a resurrected Jesus. In Acts 2, they emphasize the kingship of Jesus. But once they preach Jesus and tell that audience who he is and what God has done, they then say, this is what your response needs to be. And so those hearts that were honest and good and were convicted and received that truth into their hearts, they responded accordingly. And so we see that happening here as well. And to me, it's interesting to see how the apostles did not back down from convicting hearts of their accountability of killing God's servant. You notice that? How bold they are in that response because he says, okay, I'm not the one who healed this guy. No, he says in verse thirteen, it is God's servant Jesus. That's the one, the source of power came from. It's this Jesus, and well, well, you know which Jesus it is. We recall the name Jesus was—it's a very common name. But this particular Jesus is the one who healed this man in such an amazing way, and he says, "You." Delivered him. You disowned him. And you, you, you did this even when Pilate tried to release him. And so you see just the impact of saying, you are guilty of killing the servant of God. And it goes in verse 15, he says, and you put to death this prince of life. And instead, in verse 14, you requested, you asked for a murderer. And do you see the contrast? You, disowned, you delivered, you disowned, you put to death the holy and righteous one, the prince of life, the servant of God, and you asked for a murderer. You asked someone who takes life, that's who you allow live, and you killed the one who can give life. The word "prince" here is actually the same word that's used over in Hebrews chapter five nine, and Hebrews chapter twelve verse two. It's the same word, and your versions in Hebrews probably will use a word such as "author" or "source of salvation," and that's the idea of the, the idea here is when he says in in verse uh, you know verse where he says the prince uh, verse fifteen. You put to death the prince of life. You put to death the author. Now, you may have a version that has that word here instead of the word prince. The New American Standard Version uses the word prince, but really it's the same word as the author, the source of life. And so you ask for someone who takes life, and you, and you, and you killed someone who can give life, but not just physical life, but he can give you eternal life. And so he's really driving the point home here of the fact of their guiltiness of what they have done, that they are not exempt, they're not excused, and in spite of what they did, what did God then do? Is the, the same point he makes in, in Acts two. This is what you did to Jesus, and then God turned around and what raised him up. You know that's that's kind of the 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 big point in each sermon here. God raised him up. This man that was dead that was killed unjustly is alive again. And he's alive again because God raised him up. God the Father, Jehovah raised him up and he did so according to his plan, according to his purpose. And so it talks about, you know, you know the beforehand uh uh, aspect of God's scheme that was spoken by the prophets and how God has glorified, God has raised him from the dead. And you look here, and he, then he goes into, particularly you see in verse, uh, let me find my verse here, uh, in, in verse 17, he says, okay, I, he says, I know, you know, you know, he's being very bold, very, very kind of, you are know, you, you are guilty. You, know, you have transgressed God, and this is how you've transgressed God. You know? And he says, but I know you did it in ignorance. You know, and you did it in ignorance just like our rulers did it in ignorance. He's not excusing what they've done, but he's saying you know, it is your ignorance that was at play that led you to choose this path. Now, they were not completely ignorant of God. They were not completely ignorant of the prophecies. They were not completely ignorant of what uh, that pertained to the Messiah. But ignorance was at play. But did that ignorance excuse them? No, it did not excuse them. Yeah, ignorance, yes, was at work, but it is not an acceptable excuse before God. And there, and I think the reason why is because God told you beforehand all of these things that have happened. And so there are three different prophecies or promises that are spoken referred to in this sermon. The first one that is implied there is in verse eighteen. When he talks about the suffering Christ, the suffering anointed one of God, and that's a strong theme in the sermons of the apostles, that it was God's plan and God's predetermination and God's will that his servant fulfilled the suffering aspect of that plan. And so perhaps what passage is Peter implying in verse 18? That how by the prophets God before and told you all these things, and He's fulfilled. God has fulfilled those things. You know when His Christ, His anointed one, suffered. What prophecy can come to mind? Isaiah fifty three. That's the you know, that's that's the big one, and we call you know, and we and it's basically the suffering servant is 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 that particular th- prophecy. He says. You're ignorant. I know you did this in ignorance. You really did this in ignorance, but God told you this was going to happen. He told you that the anointed one, the Messiah, was going to suffer. And God has fulfilled that. Uh, he told, you know, he refers to in verse 22, he refers to a prophecy that he spoke through Moses. And this one has to do with the idea that there's going to be a prophet like unto Moses. And you must. Heed him. Once again, God said this. He's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. And he says, and to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. They hadn't done that, had they? He came, but they disowned him. They rejected him and they killed him. And the third one is down in verse 25 where you've got the promise that was made to Abraham concerning the seed of Abraham that through his seed all families of the earth shall be blessed. And so their ignorance, though played a role, did not excuse them from accountability and bearing the guilt of their actions and their choices because God told you. But you didn't listen to God. You are ignorant of those revelations from God. And so, you know, as he begins, like I say, he's, going for, go for, going to try to, he's trying to convict the heart here. He's trying to convict their, their minds of who Jesus is. He is the source of healing, but the emphasis is not on the man that was healed. The emphasis is on the source the emphasis on the Holy One of God and what that now means to you. And so then as he kind of bring, is bringing his lesson as recorded here in Acts 3 to its conclusion, he basically offers the invitation. And so, this is who he is. This is what you did. And he says, uh, you know, God raised him up sent him to bless you from turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And earlier, he, he very specifically expounded a little bit on what that involved in turning away from our wickedness. But what do you think when he says, for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you? What does that imply? What does that word you first imply? Right. And that's, that's the implication, you know. And so you think about this idea, where, where did the work and the cause of Christ kind of have its beginning and, and its beginning growth? It was in Jerusalem, all part of God's plan. And so, yes, they were the first to hear the fullness of the gospel being proclaimed to them. And the exposition of who Jesus is and what their response ought to be and how they can be blessed. That's the point. There is blessing, in spite of what you've done, in delivering him over to wicked rulers, disowning him, you asking for a murder instead and killing him, putting him on the cross. You're guilty of all that, but that's not the end of the story. God raised him up and God has sent him so he could turn you away from the wickedness you've committed and you be blessed. Yeah, that, that's, that's the message of the cross. The message of the, of the cross is not just, oh, he died. The message of the cross, he died so you could live. He was raised up victoriously, so you likewise can be raised up victoriously as well. And so early on, when he's, when he's telling the people what they must do so they can receive this blessing, so they can receive the benefits of the suffering servant 's death, in verse nineteen it says, he tells us that you need to repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that that times refresh you may come from the presence of the Lord. and what you see here is a very similar very similar comparison to acts two thirty eight it's the same it's the same lesson it's the same command where acts two thirty eight it says, Okay, oh, you must repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ." turning or being converted involves baptism. Why? It's so that sins will be wiped away, so sins may be forgiven or remitted. And as a result of that, you will receive the gift of the Spirit. You will receive these times of refreshment or refreshing that comes from the Lord's presence. Think about it. You're being convicted in your heart that you have Killed the very one that generations upon generations of Jews have been looking for, and so you think you think of perhaps of the guilt bearing down on you, and yet here is this message of hope in the midst of that darkness, as if you you can't you can't you can't see the end of the tunnel, you know you are just engulfed in darkness with sorrow and grief and the weight of your sin. And the message then says, but if you'll repent, if you'll be converted, God will wipe away that sin. God will forgive that sin, and you will receive the gift. You will receive refreshment that only God can. Where is this coming? It's coming from the source of the one who healed the man. The one who healed this man, Jesus, is the one who can heal your." Soul. He can take the deadness of our existence and he can raise it up and bring life back to us. And what hope that really is, and that's what the apostles are sent to do. They're, They're sent to proclaim a gospel of Jesus. And key to that is the death, burial, and resurrection. But the death, burial, and resurrection is all about salvation. It's about repentance. It's about life coming out of death. And so so chapter 3 ends with this idea. uh, We'll go back here. Ends with this idea of blessing uh, that comes from the servant. Uh, And so... That's the goal. God wants to turn men, starting with the Jews, wants to turn them from wicked ways, and so that's why he commands them repentance. And with that repentance, with that conversion, there comes you know, forgiveness, there comes refreshment. Anything you want to add, anything you want to add to you know, chapter three that I've not touched on? Anything you want to add to chap- with chapter three that I've not touched on? All right. So let's move on to chapter four. Oh, is someone over here? Okay, yes. Uh, we about ignorance. Um, I've heard this point made uh, about this before that, that there's such a thing, at, thing as uh, willful ignorance. So uh, Jesus had um, told them a lot that he was the Son of God, and they still didn't listen. Good point. And so you not only do you have not only you have the prophets from the from the Old Testament scriptures, you have the ministry, you have the work of Jesus Himself, you know, who for three years diligently went throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, you know, showing, explaining, confirming, just as you said, that he is the Son of God, He is the servant of God, He's the Son of Man. And so it is, you're right, it is this idea of willful ignorance you know, that is at play. Leanne.
1: I just wanted to say, you know, um, they were convicted and like, you were talking about the darkness that they thought they were in and no light. Uh, I think today's problem is not enough people, um, realize that sin is truly darkness. And unfortunately in society, anything goes and everything is accepted, but it doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. And, um, if more people would just learn that, um, God is loving and patient and He's what he, is, he is waiting for you to, to repent, mm-hmm. but you got to change your life. And it's not a punishment to change your life. It's a blessing mm-hmm. to change your life. I think more people would, um, stop what they were doing and think twice before they sinned.
0: Thank you. That's some very good thoughts. Appreciate that a lot that, uh, you know, there is still a sense you know, of you know, ourselves and others of convicting us of how dark sin really is, but yet seeing how great, how good, how radiant the blessing that we're promised in Jesus. But we have to take responsibility, and we have to act accordingly in God's, according to God's will. Anything else? Well, chapter four is really a continuation. You know, chapter three and chapter four are, are are all are together. It's not you know two different kind of things. And perhaps you know one of those these occasions where the chapter vision is helpful, but perhaps we lose the impact of actually how things are transpiring, how things are kind of falling out at, at, at play. Because chapter four is a reaction. It's a reaction to the miracle. It's a reaction to the preaching that we're told about in chapter 3. And so you think about you know, in, uh, in, in chapter 2 at the end, last verse, it talks about how, how the people are having favor with all, all the people. And so you have you know, the Christians and the growing church in Jerusalem. You know, there is this, you know, this really good favorability that is, is happening in the community, but that now is being interrupted. It's being interrupted by the opposition, by the opposition of the leadership, the Jewish leadership. And you've got some different terms used in chapter 4 to kind of see how across the board, what this involved. You've got priests, you've got rulers, you've got elders, you've got scribes. Those are all different terms used to describe who's really involved in this opposition and what I think in summation what you can see is there is a, a large percentage of the Jewish leadership that are alarmed by the success the apostles are having. They, they, they want to stop this flow and spread of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And at the helm of this opposition is a group, is a sect, uh, uh, called the Sadducees. And as you know, as students of God's words, they denied uh, the resurrection of the dead, where the others, another sect, the Pharisees, they believed. And so they, So even among themselves, they differed, and, and there was tension on this particular subject. But yet, at the helm of this opposition in chapter 4 are the Sadducees, uh, and this group, uh, basically kind of originate, came into being you know, uh, sometime in between the Testaments, we call it the period between the Testaments, between, so basically between you know, when the book of Malachi ends and, and before you have the coming of Christ or the coming of John. You know, sometime between the, that period of a few hundred years is when this sect developed among the Jews and among the leadership. They generally were very, were the wealthy ones, And as a result, they were also generally were very influential ones, very powerful leaders, and therefore they had a major force in the Sanhedrin. They were a major force to to reckon with in that council, and their presence was strong even in the priesthood. And you think, so that's what's at play here. And so they are disturbed, they're disturbed that the resurrection of Jesus is being proclaimed. You think Acts 2, you know, sometime later, we don't know how many days, you know, days or whatever, weeks between Acts 2 and Acts 3, same message in between, they've been preaching that same. So we like I say, you know, the preaching of the resurrected Lord is major and foundational and fundamental to the gospel and to faith in believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And this group are really upset with that. They're disturbed by that. And so, what they do now? Remember, picture this: in chapter three, they are preaching and teaching because of the the miracle of this lame man. And, and so, people you know, are, are see this. They see the healed man that they know, whether by name, they know by at least by face, and they see the evidence there. They all gather together, you know. Peter and John then begin preaching. That's what they're here. They're sent to preach you know, Christ. And so that's what they do. They're doing this in, in, in this courtyard of the Gentiles uh, uh, in the area of Solomon's porch. And it says, verse 1, as they were speaking. You know, so we got this, con- I believe, a condensed version of the sermon, of the lesson going on in chapter 3. And in verse 1, in verse seven, he says, as they were speaking, he says, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching and proclaiming, and he says, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. Now picture this. You know, Picture, let, let's say, you know, you know here we are, and let's say this is you know, Solomon's port. And, and 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 we are packed and bursting at the seams of people. And so if you think if you pack us in, we we go we're gonna go against you know codes here, and so we're gonna pack ourselves in, and, and we are you know we are shoulder to shoulder because people are are interested, they're excited, they're amazed, they're filled with wonder, and they want to hear how did this man Be made to walk. And so you you are pressing in here, and and so and and you and you and you're in that audience, and here's Peter in front of you, and John is in front of you, and you are just just grasping and, and holding on to every word they said, and then coming from the back of this crowd, you've got this Jewish leadership with the necessary people working their way through the crowd. As Peter and John's being, they worked their way through the crowd and they laid hold of them and they take them out. That's what happened. It's not like they took, you know, okay, they're ended, the crowd's dispersing and, and then later on they go find them. No, they come into this audience and they take him, they take them physically out. Was it just Peter and John? That they took? No. Who else do they take? The healed man. They take the preachers and they take the evidence, (laughs) the confirmation. Now, that's not so apparent in verse 3. That's really apparent, you know, in verse 14 when they're, they're, they're brought out and they're set in the middle of the council, and it says, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. There are three men, at least, that were taken, arrested, and put in jail that night. And it wasn't for crimes that they committed. Let me ask you this. This tactic of kind of coming in among, among the crowd, what... what? What, what could have that had on the audience? What, 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 what do you think? The leadership coming in, arresting these three, taking them out. What do you think that could have had on the audience? Mitch, just say it loud. I think the leadership typically would uh, hope that that would stop it. But typically what it does is it, it makes it spread even more. Right. And I think, you know, things like whether that was their intention or not, I don't know. But you do know that they would want to try to strike some fear into the audience, fear that this could happen to you too. Remember what the parents of the man that was born blind that Jesus healed? Because there was the threat out there. And the parents were very hush hush about what had transpired because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. And so, but, whatever their, you know, whether that was a secondary intention and motive plan, it definitely did not have the result that they would have wished. Because in Acts 4, it says, in verse 4, he says, And many of of those who heard, many of those who heard, he says, believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. So just because here we got our first opposition, first public opposition to Christ, to Christ's cause, to Christ's servants, to Christ's message. This is the first public opposition since the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're not so far removed, though, from that. And so you think about, you know, that kind of transpiring here. And the fact that what they're doing is not going, it's not going to have the result that they would have wished for. It's going, but it's all because they're preaching the resurrection. That's the thing. Remember, it's coming, the, the ones who are at this, the lead of this are Sadducees. They don't, they don't know, not only do they believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they just don't believe in the resurrection. There is such a thing. And so audacity to say that the Son of God, the servant of God came, you know, did all this great work, taught all these great things, and then we put him to death, and now God raised him up. That is not what they wanted to be preached, and that's not what they want spreading around. Let me ask this question. Based upon 1 Corinthians 15, that's that resurrection chapter, basically, let me ask you this question. If Jesus was raised from the dead, see, they're preaching the resurrection. If Jesus was raised from the dead, um, What does that mean for the resurrection of all men? Yes, it means it's true. It's real. If Jesus raised him, does that mean there is a resurrection? And they don't want that. So they they arrest him, they throw him in jail. And yet the power of the gospel was still convicting hearts and disciples are increasing in number. And so the next day, the next day you've got the intimidation. (laughs) The inquiry of intimidation, and you got this impressive gathering—very powerful and influential men—and it lists not only you, know, you, you it lists the high priest family, you know, it, all you know, those who are in office, those who are not in office. You know, so you, they're all there along with all these others, and it's, so you've got the whole council is together after making Peter, John, and the heal man stay in jail. All night, they haven't committed crime, and so the first question they ask: By what power or in what name have you done this? Think about it. They know, they understand the concept of power. They understand the concept of you know doing something in someone's name. They understood that, and so by what power are you doing this? Now think about this: leadership is the same leadership who killed Jesus. It's the same people. See, that's how close you still are. It's the same ones. If you recall in the gospel, it says, even Pilate knew this, that the motive behind rejecting Jesus was envy. That was the motive. It was envy was the motive, really, for rejecting Jesus. You know, they did not want to lose their influence of power. And so that's the big question. And so Peter, guided by the Holy Spirit, basically what he does, he basically just, once again, he preaches Jesus. <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's, it's just another you know, sermon saying the same thing, really. He preached Jesus. But the thing is, I about here, but this time, it's you know, you're in a kind of threatening, intimidating environment. You remember what Jesus said way back in Matthew ten? He says, you know, you're going to be sent out, you know, and and when and when and they're going to start and they're going to do these things to you, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, and he says, and when it happens, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say because you'll be you'll be given. What to say. And that's back in Matthew chapter 10, verse kind of 16 through 20, is that paragraph. And that's what's going on here. You know, here they're in the threatened situation, and Peter just by the Spirit starts preaching Jesus. And once again, he, what he emphasizes, he says, Jesus' authority, Jesus' power is the one who healed the man. You, though, you crucified Jesus. Once again, he's not backing off of this. That you have turned against God. But then God raised him up. But see, then he comes back to this, but you rejected God's cornerstone. Going back to the Psalms now. Another prophecy that this religious elite probably was quite familiar with that emphasize the idea of rejecting the the, cornerstone. Like I say, the builders have rejected the cornerstone, or the one that became the cornerstone. Very quickly, as time is just running out here on me, uh, if you go back and you glance at uh, that psalm, it's a psalm of praise, Emphasizing the goodness of God, the greatness of God, in all the different ways, that goodness impacts us and helps us. It's a beautiful psalm, and that, that's the core. That's the main message of that psalm. And so down around verses 22 through 26 is where it, it starts talking about how, you know, the righteous ones, the righteous ones, are going to enter the Lord's gate. As part of the goodness of God, the time will come that the righteous ones are going to enter this gate of the Lord. And he says, and, he's, and they'll give thanks you know, to, to God. Because verse 21, you have become my salvation. And is then verse 22. He's talking about, okay, open the gates. I shall enter through them. The gate of the Lord, the righteous will enter through it. You have become my salvation," he says. Verse twenty: "The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing; it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity." You know this phrase: "This is the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made." We use that. You know. In a, not, a, a a number of different contexts, and I don't think it's it's an abuse, you know, because today is the day the Lord had made, and tomorrow, Lord willing, will be another day the Lord had made. But the expression here in Psalm eighteen is not talking about every day that God, by which God through His Son sustains the universe, sustains life. Is talking about the time, the period, the day when the gate of the Lord was opened, and it was opened at a time when builders rejected the stone that became the cornerstone. That's the day the Lord made, and it is marvelous because it is that day we receive salvation. It is that day or that time that we receive prosperity from him. And so the idea, they rejected the, the key component to something that sustains the integrity of a structure. And so then he ends with saying, okay, it is that name, and it's only that name that's going to save you. There's the power of the gospel. Even the Sadducees could be saved. But like everyone else, they're going to have to repent and be converted. Thank you very much.